Trachier for Discussions of Truth. Uh, every Wednesday, this is the 4 o'clock hour. We'll be joined shortly by Professor Gerald Horn, University of Houston, that will be discussing his view on race relations in America today. Uh, who foresaw this coming? I don't think, um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe some people did. But it's certainly surprising to me. Um, let's transition here for a few moments into um, what is technocracy. And uh, coming up at the 5 o'clock hour, which is my main slot, uh, Shakira, excuse me, Sharika Soul will be joining us. Uh, Sharika is... Um, an active uh, board member of the NAASCA and also the LACP. She uh, is uh, a, an outspoken um, African-American female. Um, she's outspoken for, of course, uh, racial equality in the country, uh, rightfully so. Uh, where I personally have an issue, and I think most people do, is when the protesting becomes physical and violent, then it is no longer protesting. Um, uh, then it is rioting. And rioting and looting are a totally different thing than protesting in the sense of what is a peaceful assembly and what seems to be lawful, what certainly is civilized. Rioting and looting, in my opinion, are not civilized. Um, all right, so, and, and, and with the, with the, uh, with the, what I call ridiculous uh, measures to Defund police departments, de-arm, not only defund, but also defund police departments uh, uh, in this country. I find that utterly irresponsible. Um, racial equality is important. There's make no bones about that. We all need to be working to abolish any type of prejudice. I've encountered it personally myself. Okay, I do happen to believe happen to be a white male, and I have counted, I've encountered prejudice towards me within the past five years that I have never thought I'd encounter. But I've now encountered it. So I've been on the receiving end of the argument in the sense of the Black Lives Matter. And yes, Black Lives Matter, uh, they have been treated in the sense ancestrally, uh, historically. In a, in, a, in a, okay, using the word again, uncivilized manner in this country. But what's also interesting, and I know I'm going to talk about technocracy here in a moment, but what's also interesting is I believe the name is Anthony Johnson. Why Anthony Johnson, why that name should be important for you to know, Anthony Johnson was actually an African-American. He happened to be the first slave, official slave owner in the new colonies out of Northampton. The Northampton Colonial Court in 1654 gave him 
legal authority to enslave, I don't have the name right now, but to enslave uh, this indentured servant that he had working for him. Um, thus, an African-American was the first, this is by all my research, prove me wrong, was the first slave owner in what became the United States of America, uh, the, the, the colonies, 13 colonies. And of course, the slave was also of African origin. So get past the racial aspect of the inequality. It really comes down, right? Doesn't it all come down to money? So then let's, let's thread into technocracy. So what is technocracy? Um, by definition, if you simply run it in your Google search, and, and by the way, uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, you've got art, a, a, an enormous growth in the stock, stock market of tech companies, okay, an enormous growth of, of, uh, of, tech, of, of tech companies during this, during this shutdown. Um, it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because 50 million people unemployed, um, folks are unable to pay work, so they can't pay their rent. So you've got eviction notices rising. Um, who's making the money? Well, the people making the money are the companies that don't need labor. Don't need people to show up to a brick and mortar store and do manual labor. That's the fact. So the automated, or excuse me, automated, the automated company is, is growing exponentially during this COVID-19 period. Therefore, you have the definition of technocracy being the government or control of society or industry by an elite of technical technical experts and that just so happens to be a hearing um, happening i'll just cut to the chase big tech's out to get conservatives on capitol hill that's right not now a suspicion that's not a hunch that's a fact july 20th 2020 google removes the home pages of breitbart and the daily caller just last night we learned google has censored breitbart so traffic has declined 99 percent june 16th 2020 google threatens to demonetize and ban the federalists april 19th 2020 google and YouTube announce a policy censoring the content that conflicts with recommendations of the World Health Organization. Now think about that. The World Health Organization, the organization that lied to us, the organization that shield for China. And if you contradict something they say, they can say whatever they want. They can lie for China. They can shield for China. You say something against them, you get censored. June 29, 2020, Amazon bans President Trump's account on Twitch after he raises concerns about defunding the police, June 4th, 2020, Amazon bans a book critical of the coronavirus lockdowns written by a conservative commentator. May 27th, 2020, Amazon Smile won't let you give to the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defense Fund, but you can give to Planned Parenthood. So that's Representative Jim Jordan uh, arguing really for rights, he happens to be a conservative. Um, but what he's saying is, hey, not only, in my view, not only is technocracy rising, but it's also violating basic human rights and certainly U.S. constitutional rights, freedom of speech, that sort of thing. Um, so let's, let's get into an example here of, in the United States, we not only have a COVID-19 mask debate. So you've got some governors enforcing it, other governors not. Um, but you also have a vaccine debate. And so a group of professionals, uh, Dr. Simone Gold is one of them. Uh, she's got her MD from the University of Chicago. She's also got a law degree from Stanford, uh, Stanford Law School. And they basically went to the Senate, went to D.C., argued their case against uh, hydroxychloroquine. 
And immediately there were about, and that was, I think, broadcast live on certain platforms, Breitbart News being one of them. Immediately it caught fire and spread to millions of views. Um, it stayed in circulation for a couple hours. Donald Trump, like him or not, he retweeted it. His Twitter account got, uh, well, that tweet was, I think that tweet was censored. Then you had his son doing it. Tweet was censored. Um, and this doctor, frontline doctors group, they call themselves, their website was shut down. So, you know, the claim was that the information was misleading, but in a free society, don't, don't you leave that judgment up to the viewer or listener? Well, absolutely, you, you certainly do. So let's listen now to the clip of a doctor, a Nigerian doctor, that happens to be an African-American. Let's hear what she has to say. Or not. Okay, I'll find it another way. Um, bear with me one moment, and I will bring that clip up. Here we go. Hello, um, I'm Dr. Stella Emanuel. I'm a primary care physician in Houston, Texas. You know, um, I actually uh, went to medical school in West Africa, Nigeria, where I took care of malaria patients, treated them with hydroxychloroquine and stuff like that. So I'm actually used to these medications. I'm here because I have personally treated over 350 patients with COVID. Patients that have diabetes, patients that have high blood pressure, patients that have um, asthma, old people. I think my oldest patient is 92, 87 year olds. And the result has been the same. I put them on hydroxychloroquine, I put them on zinc, I put them on Zitromax, and they are all well. For the past few months, I've taken care of over 350 patients. We've not lost one. Not a diabetic, not a somebody with high blood pressure, not somebody with asthma, not an old person. We've not lost one patient. And on top of that, I've put myself, my staff, and many doctors that I know on hydroxychloroquine for prevention, because by the very mechanism of action, it works early and as a prophylaxis. We see patients, 10 to 15 COVID patients every day. We give them breathing treatments. We only wear surgical masks. None of us has gotten sick. It works. So right now, I, I came here to Washington DC to say, America, nobody needs to die. Is she lying the, to you? The, 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 the study that made me start using hydroxychloroquine was a study that they did in, under the NIH in 2005 lying? that say it works. Ask yourself Recently, that question. Recently, I was doing some research about a patient that had hiccups, and I found out that they even did a recent study in the NIH, which is our national institute, um, that is the, the national Why would she NIH, be lying if she's lying? Of, of health. They actually had a study, I'm going to look it up, type hiccups and COVID. You will see it. They treated a patient that had hiccups with hydroxychloroquine, and it proved that COVID is a symptom of, hydrox of, of uh, hiccups. It's a symptom of, of COVID. So if the NIH knows that treating the patient with hydroxychloroquine proves that hiccup is a symptom of COVID, then they definitely know that hydroxychloroquine works. I'm upset. Is she lying to you? Is that I see people that cannot breathe. I see parents walk in. I see diabetics sit in my office knowing that this is a death sentence and they can't breathe. And I hug them and I tell them, it's going to be okay. You're going to leave. And we treat them and they leave. What None would you do if this died. is you? So if some fake science, some person sponsored by all these fake pharma companies comes and say, oh, we've done studies and they found out that it doesn't work, I can tell you categorically it's fake science. I want to know who is sponsoring that study. I want to know who is behind it. Because there is no way I can treat 350 patients and counting and nobody is dead and they all did better. Is and then you want to tell me that you treated 20 people, 40 you people decide. and it didn't work. I'm a true testimony. So I came here to Washington, D.C. to tell America, nobody needs to get sick. This virus has a cure. It is called hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and zitromax. I know you people want to talk about masks. Hello? You don't need masks. There is a cure. I know they don't want to open schools. No, you don't need to, people to be locked down. Listen to the there passion is prevention in her voice. and there is a cure. And let me tell you something. 
All you fake doctors out there that tell me, oh yeah, I want a double-blinded studies. I just tell you, speak sounding like a computer, double-blinded, double-blinded. Is you? I don't know whether your chips are malfunctioning, but I'm a real doctor. I have radiologists. We have plastic surgeons. We have she's board certified, like Sanjay Gupta, saying, "Oh yeah, it doesn't work, and it causes heart disease." Let me ask you, Doctor Sanjay Gupta, hear me. Have you ever seen a COVID patient? Have you ever treated anybody with hydroxychloroquine and died from heart disease? Listen. When you do, come and talk to me. Because I sit down in my clinic every day and I see these patients walk in every day, scared to, scared to death. I see people driving two, three hours to my clinic because some ER doctor is scared of the Texas board or they are scared of something and they will not prescribe medication to these people. I tell all of you doctors that are sitting down and watching Americans die. You're like... Why would she be lying? Nazi, Why? The good one, the good Germans that watch Jews get killed and you do not speak up. If they come after me, they threaten me, They've threatened to, I mean, I've gotten all serious. kinds of threats. Oh, they're going to report me to the boards. They're going to, I say, you know what, I don't care. I'm not going to let Americans die. And if this is the mountain, if this is the hill where I get nailed on, I will get nailed on it. I don't care. She you can to report me to the boards. You can kill me. And the Daily Beast and others are tearing her apart die. because of it. And today I'm here to say it, that America, there is a cure for COVID. All this foolishness, it not, does not need to happen. There is a cure for COVID. There is a cure for COVID. It's called hydroxychloroquine. It's called zinc. It's called Zitromax. And it is time for the grassroots to wake up and say, no, we're not going to take this any longer. We're not going to die. Because let me tell you something. When somebody is dead, they are dead. They're not coming back tomorrow to have an argument. They're not coming back tomorrow to discuss the double-blinded study and the data. All of you doctors that are waiting for data, if six months down the line you actually found out that this data shows that this medication works, how about your patients that have died? You want a double-blinded study where people are dying? It's unethical. Folks, why would she be lying? And you've got to ask yourself that question. And why would, why would uh, the Dr. Simone Gold, with an MD from University of Chicago and a JD, she's got them both, from Stanford, why would she be lying? Because she's essentially saying the same thing that Dr. Emanuel is saying uh, right there. She's saying hydroxychloroquine is not only safe, but it's been effective in almost 350 cases that she's personally treated. You've got to follow the money trail, folks, and then you've got to weave in technocracy into all of this. Okay, The technocracy, essentially the platform that that's running on, is censoring these types of speeches, these types of information exposing. Why are they being censored? Is it that because there's truth to this? Is it because the pharmaceutical companies that perhaps are in bed with the same banks that fund the technology companies, is it possible that they stand to not profit billions, billions. If testimonies like this, Dr. Emanuel, break out into the mainstream and the people rise up against it. Well, I would, I would suggest to you that yes, that is likely a real possibility, especially when a computer engineer, Bill Gates, who I've invited onto this program, has said he is wanting 7 billion vaccines and he wants vaccines administered to the entire global population before, quote, things return back to normal. Is your normal the same as his normal? No. His wealth has grown almost double in the past 10 years since he's decided to, quote, give his fortune to philanthropy. Yet somehow, giving that fortune away has only doubled his wealth. Folks, you're being conned. You're being brainwashed. This is Ian Trache for Discussions of Truth. I've been doing this now going on four years, coming up on four years, we're breaking away to now bring in Dr. Gerald Horn from the University of Houston. 
He'll talk about race in the United States. He's got a PhD in history from Columbia University, a JD from the University of California, Berkeley, and a BA from Princeton. Bringing in Dr. Gerald Horn. Hello? Dr. Horn, welcome to Discussions of Truth. This is Ian Trottier. How are you today, sir? Aha. Okay. Um, Gerald, I'll call you back. You may not be able to hear me. Let me see here. Evidently, you, you were not able to hear me. A similar issue here. Here we can call him back. This works. Dr. Yes. Horn, can you hear me? Yes. No, Fantastic. Can. can you hear me? Yes, I can hear we can hear you loud and clear, sir. Welcome to this Yes. Oh how long are we we're not on the air now, are we? Uh yes. Everything's being recorded right now. Oh, okay. How long will we be on? About thirty minutes. Okay. Good. Let's do it. Fantastic. Uh, sir, uh, Gerald, please take a moment and um, introduce yourself to listeners. I've, I've given a little bit of back background. You're incredibly, incredibly well-educated with degrees from Princeton, Columbia, uh, and Cal Berkeley. Um, and um, anyway, take it from there if you would. Make a brief introduction, and then, uh, and then I'd like to get into uh, your perspective on what's happening in, in the United States right now. This is Gerald Horn. I'm Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies in the University of Houston. I formerly was an attorney, and now I'm a historian, and I've published about three dozen books. That's quite a resume. Um, what is your What is the current work that you that you're working on? Let me let me let me say, Gerald, that two two of the books that that have enticed me um, are are Race to Revolution. Uh, the uh, United States and Cuba during slavery and Jim Crow, and then another one of your works that I've that stuck out at me is uh, titled "Negro Comrades of the Crown: African Americans and the British Empire Fight the U.S. Before Emancipation." Well, with regard to the first book, as the title suggests, it deals with the relationship between the island of Cuba and First, the British Empire that ruled in North America, and secondly, with the United States of America that emerges in the late 18th century. Now, the relationship is varied. Uh, I focus on the slave trade, the slave trade in Africans. And that is to say how you had, during the era of an independent Texas, you know that Texas seceded from Mexico in 1836. Sure. yeah. Before it joined the United States in 1845. And during that era, there was a very close relationship between Galveston, Texas, which was a major slave trading port, and the island of Cuba. And uh, then, of course, the relationship continues during the U.S. Civil War, because, as you know, Cuba abolishes slavery uh, some years after the United States abolishes slavery. Interesting. And so Spanish Cuba, that is to say, when Cuba was under Spanish colonial rule, Interestingly enough, they were somewhat ambivalent about the Confederate States of America, that is to say the, the rebels who seceded from the United States, because they felt that the Confederate States of America, if it had prevailed, would try to then oust the Spanish from Cuba. And so even though they were on the same page with regard to being pro-slavery, there was ambivalence on the part of Spanish Cuba with regard to the Confederate States of America. And then, of course, I deal with the period following that, that is to say the revolt against uh, Spanish rule, uh, where you have Jose Marti and Antonio Maceo playing leading roles, and then the Spanish-American War, uh, 1898, when the United States uh, basically uh, defeat Spain in the midst of a, Span a Cuban revolt against Spanish colonial rule. And somehow 
out of that mix, the United States winds up playing a leading role, shall we say, euphemistically, uh, in Cuba. And uh, then I take the story up until 1959, where, of course, you have the revolution. Now, with regard to the other book, Negro Comrades of the Crown, this is a book that talks about how, because Black people were enslaved in the United States of America, and there was a growing abolitionist movement in London, that there was a kind of collaboration between the London abolitionists and Black Americans. And it takes many different forms. It takes the form of Black American collaboration with the Redcoats during the War of 1812, when you might recall the Redcoats burned down Washington, D.C. in August 1814. And uh, you have many U.S. Negroes uh, who are working with London during that time. Many of them wind up escaping to Trinidad and Tobago, where their uh, descendants continue to reside. And then, of course, this abolitionist movement also plays a role with regard to this issue I just mentioned, which is Texas. Uh, That is to say that Texas was basically a slave trading and slavery, pro-slavery state, and many black people, needless to say, were opposed to slavery, so they collaborated <laughs> with the uh, British yeah. abolitionists with regard to uh, putting pressure on slavery in Texas. And then I take the story up through the U.S. Civil War, uh, when there was a fear that London would intervene in the U.S. Civil War on behalf of the so-called Confederate States of America. Uh But it did not, not least because of the strength of British abolitionism and the pre-existing relationship between British abolitionists and black Americans who then put sufficient pressure on London not to intervene on behalf of the Confederate rebels. So, Gerald, is is it safe to say that the United States had more or less adapted this, um, economic uh, uh, arm uh, of slavery, because essentially it comes down to economics, unfortunately, uh, in my view, Um, was that something that was adapted from the Spanish rather than the British? Well, I would say, well, first of all, you have to realize, you know, I just published the book on the 16th century. And it deals with the conflict between the English and the Spanish during that time. And this is post-1492. And what's interesting about Spanish Cuba from the inception, and this is something people in the United States have a hard time understanding, is that the Spanish had a religious qualification for being a settler. So therefore, if you could be a black conquistador if you profess Catholicism. And as a result, from its inception in the 1500s, you had a substantial free Negro population in Cuba. The English, for various reasons that need not detain us here, opted for a different model. And there was always a rather small free Negro population in North America uh, compared to the island of Cuba. And uh, that particular model was then uh, carried in, in, into further development after 1776 when the United States evolves and develops. Right. If we back up to the 1640s, it, 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 it shine light on this if, if, if you're familiar with this individual. What I've learned recently is a slave owner by the name of Anthony Johnson out of Northampton. Are you familiar with that name? Yeah, I think I talk about him in my book on the 17th century. What you need to realize is that when when the English arrived in 1607 in the land that they call Virginia, purportedly named after the supposed Virgin Queen, right. Queen Elizabeth, that there's a certain fluidity with regard to the role of Black people, even though it's fair to say that Uh, Black people had been enslaved uh, in Europe, uh, even before in North America, uh, for decades earlier. However, given the rather uh, disadvantageous position of the original settlers, the 
settlement in Virginia was almost destroyed in the 1620s, there was a certain fluidity with regard to the black population. And so therefore, early on, you did have a free Negro population that was developing in Virginia. But for various reasons, it did not evolve the way it did in Cuba. And uh, that's one of the differences between the North American mainland and the island of Cuba. Right. And again, for listeners understanding, Cuba was, and correct me, Gerald, if I'm wrong, but Cuba was basically the principal uh, uh, port uh, of uh, administration, if you will, of that Uh, those conquering uh, years, whereas I believe from Cuba, the administration to conquer uh, the various Caribbean assets that they had in Central America, South America, it all kind of was directed Mexico through Cuba. Is that correct? Well, largely speaking, yes. I mean, keep in mind that a good deal of the wealth that was flowing into Spain was coming out of Peru. And it was coming out of what was called New Spain, which we call uh, Mexico. Now, what's interesting is that oftentimes the ships would stop through Cuba on their way across the Atlantic. And what happens is that you have English pirates led by the notorious Sir Francis Drake, not to mention French pirates as well, who would seek to prey upon these Spanish vessels as they are sailing into Cuba or sailing away from Cuba which then leads to the first permanent settlement in what they call Florida in St. Augustine in 1565. Although, as you know, uh, Ponce de Leon had tried to establish a settlement there uh, decades earlier, and there had been an attempt to establish a settlement in Pensacola a few years before St. Augustine was established in 1565. And from the beginning, Florida was like an adjunct to Cuba. Uh, It was a way for Cuba to establish a base so that it could attack these pirates from the north. And it was also a way for for Cuba, and Spanish Cuba, I should say, to have this base where they could rescue uh, ships that either had been caught in hurricanes or had been caught in the choppy waters. And it was also a way for Spanish Cuba to put pressure on the indigenous population of Florida, which oftentimes collaborated with the English and Sir Francis Drake and the French pirates as well. So that's one of the anomalies of this history is that Florida was originally sort of an outgrowth of Cuba rather than vice versa. Now, Gerald, shine a little bit of light for listeners on the fact the globe is a large place, seven continents. Africa is one of the continents. Um, why is it that, uh, that the, the slave trade was initiated, it was typically Kenyan? You can shed a little bit of light on me, but, but what was it about that system that was uh, set in those countries then in, in Africa that, um, that spawned this, this slave trade you know as as deplorable as it as it is we look back on it and it, it's you know it, it's not not happening there's slavery slavery and other means happening today um human trafficking unfortunately but 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 in that aspect of uh, uh physical labor uh, that you know, the africans were exploited for uh but that again that particular part of africa that i'm uh, understanding is more western uh, northwestern side of Africa. What is it about that you know historically that um, that kind of spawned that growth uh, for that that system to even exist? Well, first of all, with regard to slavery, the Ottoman Turks were a major power, the na- nation we now call Turkey, and they were an equal opportunity in slavery. Uh, they enslaved Africans. If you look at the history of Albania, Serbia, Kosovo, Bosnia, Bulgaria, you'll find that they were enslaving Europeans. Uh, there was a thriving slave trade in North Africa, particularly Algeria, uh, where you had Western European Christians being enslaved. And then if you look at the Spanish, they were not only enslaving Africans, they were enslaving the indigenous populations of 
New Spain, Mexico, and of course, North America, including Florida and what we now call New Mexico. And in fact, the Spanish, after they sailed into what they called the Philippines, named after King Philip in the 1500s, they began dragging Filipinos across the Pacific to be enslaved in Mexico. The English, in some ways, were latecomers to this uh, enslaving process. And for various reasons, they tended to focus upon enslaving Africans. And keep in mind that even before 1492, there had been a process of mass enslavement, not only of Africans, but as noted, uh, Europeans, particularly in North Africa. But the innovation, if I can use that term, that London brought to the slave trade was this process of racialization, whereby the Africans were racialized. They were seen as part of, not necessarily part of the human family. They could convert to Christianity and still be considered to be inferior after a certain time, after a certain moment in history, unlike in Spanish Cuba, where, as I noted, if yeah. you converted to Catholicism, you could even be a conquistador. And of course, there weren't yeah. that many, but there were some. And so this is the process of degradation, and it was one of the reasons why uh, England then pioneered in the slave trade, I would say, from the middle of the uh, 17th century, let's say 1650, up until, I guess, maybe about 1780. Right. Okay, so that's that's an important piece of information, and certainly that's... Um, that echoed throughout the, the preceding decades uh, into the time of, of, of Martin Luther King that, that really had honed in on it and said, hey, this is, uh, th these, of course, slavery had been abolished uh, under, under Abe Lincoln, but still carrying these kind of superiority type views, racial views. Uh, are you saying that this is, this is really birthed in London uh, uh, a couple centuries prior? I'm saying it's birthed in London, but it's not necessarily the exclusive province of London. R recall that there are certain verses in the Bible that many European Christians use, such as the Curse of Ham, which suggested that uh, because of certain events that happened hundreds of years ago, Africans were doomed and destined mm -hmm. to be enslaved. Yeah. But it is fair to say that that particular system was honed by London and then was inherited by its spawn, speaking of the United States of America. And to a certain degree, we're still fighting yeah, uh, that yeah. particular system of, of racialized inferiority. Now, your most current book, uh, I'm not sure if it's released or not. It looks like uh, the title is The Dawning of the Apocalypse. That's correct. Get into that, if you would, Gerald, for a moment. Well, it deals with the periods from Christopher Columbus's voyage in 1492, and the question really, it's a simple question, is given the fact that Spain had the first mover's advantage, they're the ones who sponsored Christopher Columbus, why are we sitting here in North America speaking English? And that's the question I've tried to answer, and I put it in the context of a religious conflict, a very bitter religious conflict, Protestants and Catholics. Mm -hmm. Protestantism, as you know, uh, spearheaded by Martin Luther in what we now call Germany in 1517, spreading to London by the 1530s. It leads to bitter and rancorous re religious wars. London is the scrappy underdog. And as a result, if it wants to get in on this new process of wealth accumulation in the Americas, it has to present a different kind of package and platform. And so whereas in order to be a Spanish settler, you had to be Catholic. I, I go in quite a bit into the history of Florida in the 1500s. And one of the problems that Florida had under Spanish rule is that they would repel settlers who were not Catholic. This is particularly true of Jewish settlers. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, some were able to arrive in Spanish Florida, nonetheless, under the guise of being Christian, but they could not arrive under the guise of being Jewish. Even though London had expelled its Jewish population in 1291, 200 years before 
Spain did in 1492, yes, that magical year, because Protestant London was the scrappy underdog, it could not afford to be choosy with regard to accepting settlers. And so it opens its embrace to accepting the Sephardim, uh, even opening its embrace to those it expelled 200 years earlier. They're speaking of English Jewish people. Yeah. And even opening its embrace to Irish Catholics, who it had been in conflict with uh, even before the Protestant Reformation in 1517, led by Martin Luther. And ultimately, that helps to explain why we're speaking uh, English, because even as the English were landing what they call Virginia in 1607, the Spanish from their perch in St. Augustine were hotly opposed to this, but they were so bogged down in fighting the indigenous population of Florida, uh, who were oftentimes allied with the enslaved African population, that they were handcuffed. They could not move north to stop this English, what they called invasion of this new land that the English called Virginia. And so that is one of the reasons why we're sitting here speaking English today. Well, incredibly well said, Gerald. Thank you. Uh, let's 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 stay in today perspective and 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 look at the, the this movement um, that I I typically didn't give much time to thinking about. Uh, I had heard of it, but now during the uh, the viral outbreak, it seems to have uh, and certainly with the uh, with the recent uh, with recent uh, police involvements and killings, uh, we've got this Black Lives Matter movement. Um, what what's behind that in in your view, Gerald? And are there any parallels to um, to religion? Um, uh, that's a that's a real broad question, of course. But you, you know, you've you've kind of looked at it historically, um, and of course, one of the keystones. Uh, that we've enjoyed, I suppose, for the past couple hundred years is a religious freedom. Um, how is that surfacing uh, in what's going on today? Well, with regard to the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, I think what happened is the event, the tragic event of May 25th, 2020, when George Floyd was fundamentally lynched on camera. Yeah. And the police officer keeping his knee on his neck for almost nine minutes. And I think that that shocked the conscience of many people and it helped to make real these repetitive claims that black people were being manhandled by the police. And I think that that has brought people into the streets and continues to bring people to the streets. Now, with regard to the second part of your question, uh, I'll give a response, although I'm yeah. not sure if this is responsive. <laughs> that is to say that in my 16th century book, I argued that in part, this racialization process stems out of religiosity. Uh, I'm, I'm searching high and low for the origins of racialization. And one hypothesis that I put forward in this new book is that you can trace it back once again to religious conflict, this time between Western European Christians and Muslims, when the Western European Christians decide in 1095 through the Crusades that they're going to reclaim what they call the Holy Land, which leads to repetitive conflict between, between Christians and Muslims. Keep in mind that part of the explanation for Spanish history is that Spain itself was dominated by Muslims for hundreds of years up until 1492, once again, that magical year. And I suggest in this new book that during the Crusades, there was a kind of attempt to racialize the Muslims, in fact, and define them as being not part of the human family, and that ultimately that kind of process is exported to black people, because keep in mind that many of the early areas from which enslaved Africans were seized were areas like today's Senegal, today's Gambia, today's Mauritania, uh, today's Cote d'Ivoire, where there are substantial black Muslim populations. And so these were the populations that were being enslaved. So uh, I try to show this confluence between race and religion. And I'm not sure 
today in 2020, what impact that is having? Perhaps you could elaborate on your question. Yeah, no, I think, but, but I think you've 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 drawn a, a, an important parallel here in that perhaps religious interpretation, uh, or perhaps a religion is a spiritual interpretation. I'm not sure quite, but uh, therefore a a, a a a mechanism of control is implemented to. Um, uh, uh, to systematically control a ethnicity, um, and um, a- again, that was a broad question because I don't, I don't really see uh, religion uh, uh, aligning itself to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, again, so from my perspective, I frankly find it appalling. Um, I uh, growing up in California. Uh, I had friends of, of all ethnicities. So, um, and, and, and you being educated at Cal Berkeley are well aware of uh, that type of atmosphere. Um, uh, so seeing this happen in 2020 and, and having uh, lived through the Rodney King uh, beating and, and just to kind of have this, of course, he's still alive, but I, I believe he's still alive or he was no, for he quite a while. Away. Oh, he's passed away now. Okay, but he wouldn't be. He's been gone for a while. I don't. I don't know. I don't remember. A few years. Yeah. A few years. Okay. Um, well, he wasn't. I guess my point was that he 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 wasn't beaten to death. Um, whereas uh, this fellow in Minneapolis, uh, unfortunately, was 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 blatantly killed, uh, murdered, um, and so that, like you're saying, is really pissed people off. Excuse the harsh language. Um, and, but again, I was just trying to uh, see if you were finding any type of um, uh, religious uh, 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 fruition coming coming through some of these uh, some of these seems to to support uh, support this. So, um, we've got a, a a very interesting time in that now this Antifa movement, which seems to be white uh, middle-class uh, men are uh, sparking the, the, this, this fire, this anger that many people have regarding the racial injustice. Um, that's just kind of seems to be what I'm looking at in Portland. But again, it's with, with the, with the uh, differing differences in news, uh, reporting it, it seems to be hard to identify what exactly is going on, uh, and and then the federal police being inserted in that. Um, I, I guess a, a good opinion from you, um, with your background, would be how do Americans move forward, Gerald? Um, you know, I mean, uh, united we stand, divided we fall. Um, division seems to be uh, deepening. Uh, with each day, uh, from my view, um, and we really need, we need, we need that leader, if you will. We need, we need that division, or excuse me, we need that y- y- uni- unity. Um, this this country has achieved such wonderful things uh, in its short uh, lifespan, and um, it, it, how do Americans move forward to 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 find that unity? Well, I think, and part is happening as we speak. I mean. For example, one of the reforms that's emerged since May 25th, 2020, I think many people are getting behind. And that is that you don't necessarily need a police officer, a man or woman with a gun to handle a noise complaint from a nosy neighbor or to write an accident report after a fender bender on I-95 or to deal with a mentally challenged And therefore, you might need a social worker or even a clerk for that sort of activity, which then in turn saves the taxpayers money because oftentimes they're paid less than the man or woman with a gun. And it also reduces the possibility of the man or woman with a gun shooting some civilian because you're sending a social worker in to this situation where otherwise a police officer would have been deployed. And in turn, when the police kill a civilian, that oftentimes leads to lawsuits. You have lawyers, and actually I know some of them, some of them I went to law school with, who make small fortunes. 
suing police departments, gets a multi-million dollar judgment, of which they get one third. And then what happens is that these municipalities either have to raise taxes or borrow money as a result. And so if you send, if you reduce the possibility of these uh, armed clashes taking place, in many ways, you're saving the taxpayers money. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reforms coming out of May 25th. And when you have less of a possibility of black people being killed, I think it helps to bring people together. Now, going back to your earlier question, after a, a, a moment of reflection, one of the points that I make in the 16th century book that I was elaborating, but somehow did not complete, is that racism to a certain extent has religious roots. In fact, I quote certain scholars who look at the era of lynching. I'm sure you recall the era of lynching post-U.S. Civil War, 1865, up until about 1950, 1960, no. maybe, when uh, black men in particular were uh, hung from a tree oh, by yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, some scholars have seen religious overtones in lynching, believe it or not, in terms of the burning crosses, and they, 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 they try to connect. And you can go to my footnotes in my book to see who these scholars are. And certainly in, in, in terms of taking on faith, this idea that black people are inferior and not necessarily being swayed by evidence, uh, this too has a kind of mis mystical uh, aura to it that in some ways is reminiscent of certain kinds of religion. Gerald, does the infrastructure, if you will, of, of the United States uh, systematically, does it, does it need a complete overhaul? Whereas, um, I believe a recent WNBA game, the players uh, to protest, to use that word again, uh, the, the, the playing of the national anthem, they retreated to their locker room. Um, is, is, is that, should that be tolerable? Of course, it's their choice. They can do what they like. But it's sending a message to me, I think, and other people, perhaps to you. I don't know. It's sending a message that um, that this this country needs a complete um, uh, uh, rewriting, and even little things like the national anthem need to be rewritten. What, what do you think of that? Well, part of the problem is that Senator Kelly Loeffler of Georgia is has a is is an owner. Uh, you know, as you know, she got in the hot water a few months ago when it was thought that she was trading on inside information about the pandemic to make a pretty profit. And some ways she's campaigning against Black Lives Matter. And mm -hmm. there are certain WNBA players who are taking exception to that. And that, in my understanding, was part of the trigger leading to these walk offs. And of course, she's making a campaign issue of that as we speak to get reelected in the state of Georgia, or to get elected because she was appointed uh, in, in the state of Georgia. I think that secondly, there is an objection to the national anthem itself, because if you look at the third stanza, recall what I just said about the War of 1812. Francis Scott Key in the third stanza of the national anthem rebukes and reprimands the black community for siding with the British during the War of uh, 1812, and many people feel that that's antiquated, uh, anachronistic, old-fashioned, mm -hmm. and just like you having the takedown of the statues of Robert E. Lee, perhaps the renaming of Fort Bragg and other military encampments, such as Fort Benning in Georgia, named after Confederate war heroes, perhaps the national anthem itself is overdue for a fresh look and a fresh examination, because we have to recognize that black people in the United States in particular, and let's not even talk about the Native American population, mm. we can perhaps save that for another conversation, uh, have spent more time in enslavement in North America than in non-enslavement. Wow. So therefore, that is a burden that continues to hang over the society and certainly continues to hang over black people in particular. Yeah. Um, as we close down, uh, uh, final few moments here, Gerald. Um... I'd like you to leave some some closing comments uh, for listeners. Uh, uh, again, best foot forward type comments. How to unite? 
Um, and uh, if there's anything in your in your history as a as a uh, highly achieving, uh, well achieved, if you will, uh, 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 black man in the in the academic world, uh, the institutions that you've attended are. Uh, are very high levels, and um, ha- have you at, at any time in your uh, in your uh, career um, found these types of struggles that you have successfully overcome? Um, so the kind of two questions, um, an example perhaps you might share with listeners, um, and and of course uh, some closing comments on on how best to to move forward, regardless of. Uh, the listeners uh, uh, ethnicity uh, if we are to but of course not, not to use that too lightly because you've brought up some some very uh, important points here that um, that that resonate certainly with uh, with 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 an african-american uh, so I hope I haven't complicated that two-part question too much for you well, sure. I mean, like any other black man in North America, I, I've had my difficulties and obstacles to overcome. Uh, the most bracing, if you like, have probably been off campus. Although I guess with on campus, I'm, I'm thinking of confrontations with the police in terms of being pulled over and, and then yep. having to go through the drill of keeping my hands visible and speaking in a monotone and not letting my voice rise or fall. Wow. And, you know, the, the whole drill that you're taught to, to escape uh, any kind of confrontation. Fortunately, I'm still alive. I'm still here. So I must have done something right. And with regard to going forward, uh, I, I would say, once again, we need to find that common ground. And I think that some of these reforms that we're talking about, where you're trying to replace Man, a man or woman with a gun, with a clerk or social worker. Yeah. Because this, despite these TV shows, Law and Order and the now defunct cops and live PD, a lot of police work is not necessarily uh, chasing felons who are armed. It's these sorts of mundane and perhaps even trivial episodes. And I think that it makes sense from the taxpayer's point of view to put social workers and clerks in that position, which reduce, reduces the possibility of armed confrontations. It saves the taxpayers money. Uh, as some like to say in Washington, it's a win-win bargain. What can listeners expect uh, on the horizon for you? Well, I just finished my uh, new book on boxing, believe it or not. And there's a lot of Miami history. Yes, Florida history in this book on boxing. Great. Because you, you may recall Angelo Dundee, who was Muhammad Lee's trainer. Yep. His brother, Chris Dundee, was a promoter in Miami for years. And he plays a central role in this particular book. So look for that book in about nine or ten months. Excellent, Gerald. Uh, invite you back on. Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali would train right right in South Beach. So, uh, so that'll be a fantastic uh, read. Uh Gerald, thank you for joining the program. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Morse Professorship, Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn. Gerald, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Folks, uh, you've, you've, you've got some incredible history that came forth right there from Gerald Horn. And, um, Look, I tend to certainly like to persuade those that look into history. Look, what's the what's the um, what's the famous kind of phrase that's always tossed around? Right, all roads lead to Rome. Well, all roads lead to Rome for a reason. Uh, bringing up Martin Luther, bringing up the printing press, bringing up changes of what was, uh, like uh, Dr. Horn had mentioned, um, a uh, mandatory religion in Catholicism. Um, You heard it right there. Uh, If you're in a black man in Cuba, you could convert to Catholicism and be free. 
You could actually be a conquistador. We'll arm you. Um, but you had, through Europe, you had these religious pro, 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 Protestants, these protests, if you will, to uh, the, the main Roman religion. The, so what is the main constant throughout the centuries? Well, Rome, okay? Uh, Catholicism, Catholicism, it still stands. Uh, now, ironically, the only Catholic president of the United States got his head blown off. Uh, and, um, well, who assassinated him? There's a lot of objection to the official report of that being Lee Harvey Oswald, the rogue uh, militant, and rather that he was simply a patsy for someone who was not happy with the way John was trying to change uh, the banking system in the United States. I personally give more credence to that type of in-depth thinking. Uh, though theoretical, it, it does require a little more of that thought. Um, so, anyway, um, Gerald, uh, Gerald Horn, uh, folks, and uh, I will be... Um, I will be back momentarily with the five o'clock hour and uh, we'll have Sharika Soul join us. Thanks for tuning in. This is Discussions of Truth. <laughs>